Welcome to Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN.
Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan, your host every Sunday from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. on Radio Orbit. Thanks for being with me tonight. We've got a very exciting show coming up for you all tonight. Hope you're prepared to stick with me for a few hours and uh, maybe have your opinion of reality adjusted just a little bit tonight. This is sort of a reality check edition of Radio Orbit on this September 11th evening. In fact, September 12th right now. But uh, in honor of that fateful day three years ago, we are going to do a special September 11th version of the program tonight. And my guest coming up in about 55 minutes at the top of the hour, uh, I'm going to be airing an interview with a gentleman whose name is G. Edward Griffin. G. Edward Griffin is an author and a documentary film producer and a historian and uh, quite an intelligent man with a very diverse background and knows a lot about a lot of things and he's going to be discussing with us on tape uh, the the issues of September 11th, the events of that day, and really the events, uh, the events of the, the past hundred years or so that sort of led up to that, uh, that day and the things that happened on September 11th. So in any case tonight, a special September 11th edition of Radio Orbit in honor of all of those people who lost their lives on September 11th, 2001 all the people in the trade centers, all the American citizens who uh, tried to help out afterwards, all the people that were there helping out in the rescue operations, and uh, really the ripple effect that cruised through our entire society, our, our entire culture, indeed our entire planet three years ago, and the effects of that, uh, the events of that day are still being felt worldwide. In fact, uh, probably greater so today than they were on the 12th of September three years ago. So tonight, uh, that's going to be the topic. We're uh, going to do some of the things that we normally do. We'll do a little space weather update here in just a minute, and we'll play some good music, talk about a couple other stories that I want to bring you all up to speed on, and uh, then we'll air that interview with G. Edward Griffin in just about an hour or so. And the interview will last about an hour and a half with some music mixed in, maybe an hour and 40 minutes. And at the end of the program, uh, between, the, uh, between 4.30 and 5 o'clock this morning, I'll probably open the phone lines and uh, let anybody give me a call if they're interested in discussing any of the things that we've been talking about tonight or have any comments or questions about the interview with Ed Griffin after, that, uh, after we hear that. So we'll open the phone lines up and 
probably just finish off the evening from 4.30 till about 5 o'clock with just some music and let everybody sort of contemplate what they've heard in the previous two hours because uh, it is going to be sort of a groundbreaking program and there'll be information uh, uh, given out uh, by Mr. Griffin that a lot of people probably aren't familiar with right now and it may be something that uh, um, that will help you uh, understand sort of what's really going on right now on the planet and in our country because it's a very confusing time very uh, difficult to know what the truth is we get mixed messages coming across all the time from all kinds of different sources be they on the right or on the left or in the middle or from who knows where so we'll be trying to sort some of that stuff out tonight and g edward griffin is going to help us do that and i'm real excited to air that interview with him tonight i've been working real hard to get him uh, on the air and i wanted to be able to air his interview on september 11th and i was able to get the interview finished last monday and i'm real pleased to be able to bring it to you guys tonight because it's a real important bunch of information that uh, he's he's sharing with you and with me so we'll get to that in just an hour or so in the meantime uh let's see what else do i need to bring you up to speed on ah last week a little bit of a glitch in the in the machinery last week i was actually out of town went to denver for a wedding and went to visit a good friend of mine who got married and uh, so i wasn't here for my show I had somebody had somebody scheduled to come in and do the program for me. However, this is community radio, and it didn't quite work out the way that we had planned. So, you may have heard uh, a lot of nothing last year at about the, or last week at about this time, and uh, we've got it back together. And unfortunately, that's just the way things go sometimes. So, here we are. We're back uh, with you tonight. Radio Orbit coming to you live from Columbia, Missouri. KOPN 89.5 FM, Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's more than radio, it's community radio, and it's also the home for Radio Orbit, located downtown on Broadway, right in the heart of Missouri, Columbia, Missouri, and uh, we're serving points all around this lovely town of Columbia, including Tibet's Sturgeon, Harrisburg, Madison, Russellville. Salisbury, Ovas, and lots of other areas around here. So thanks for joining me tonight. Radio Orbit, Mike Hagan, let's get things going right away. Okay, as you all know, uh, at the beginning of the program, we like to do what we call Space Weather Update. Let everybody know what's happening in the local vicinity around our planet. If there's anything interesting, we like to talk about those things. We like to talk about the sun and uh, let you all know what's happening with the solar activity as of late. Hasn't been uh, too active in the last week and a half or so, although just this evening, just actually a couple of, uh, couple of hours ago, a pretty, pretty significant M-class flare, sort of a long-burning M-class that sort of peaked uh, in just the last few hours from, uh, from Sunspot Region 672, sort of uh, surprised us today, but nothing real significant, although that was a pretty good size M-Class flare. We really haven't seen a whole lot of, uh, uh, a lot of significant activity from any of these particular sunspot regions in the last week and a half, 10 days, 14 days or so. So in any case, uh, uh, the solar outlook is relatively, uh, we're looking for relatively low activity over the weekend. Uh, the solar wind is not blowing too fast right now. We have a pretty low likelihood of having any sort of aurora activity in latitudes 
further south or further north than would typically be expected, and uh, really no other significant activity expected from other uh, from any other regions other than that uh, 672 that I told you about just a little bit earlier, where we're seeing some some M-class flare activity. Uh, let's see what else going on in the sky. In the morning, you might want to take a look uh, outside tomorrow morning if you're up early enough. Um, you can see Mercury. There'll be a, sort of a slender crescent of the moon if you look to uh, if you look to the east, and uh, you will see a beautiful crescent moon sort of hovering there, and uh, you'll see just off to I believe the right hand side you will see Mercury and um, uh, Venus and Saturn and uh, some of the luminous stars of Orion will be out uh, at that time and very bright tomorrow morning or this morning depending on how you look at it. Uh, so it's a good morning to wake up early and go out and peer toward the east and uh, see an interesting little little formation up there in the heavens. And of course Venus always real bright uh, right now in the eastern sky as well in the morning. So that's what's going on right now in the skies above us for the most part. We talk about near-Earth asteroids quite a bit here on this program, too. We talk a lot about impact scenarios and flybys and asteroids and comets and all those sorts of things. And as you know, for the, pl the past couple of months, we've been talking about uh, an asteroid whose name is Teutatis. And Teutatis has a flyby in just a couple of weeks on the 29th of September my program will actually be on the 16th I take that back on the 26th of September so uh, the actual flyby will be sort of in the middle of the week but on the 26th we'll do a little special uh, update on Tutatis and we'll try to learn a little bit more about that rock uh, we've talked about it in the past and I've told you that it is a quite a big asteroid over uh, a mile and a half wide and I want to say three miles long it has sort of a potato like shape and it has a real funky uh, rotation sort of a three axis rotation and a very interesting orbit which makes it makes it quite unpredictable so it's going to make a pretty close flyby on the 29th we're thinking that it's going to be within a million miles or so of planet earth and cosmically speaking that is just a whisker, not a very far distance, and uh, anything can happen that can adjust the orbit of things like that. And um, so that's one that we're going to be watching very closely because if we did have a close encounter with Earth or the Moon with an asteroid the size of Teutatis, it could give uh, uh, well, it could it could present some pretty interesting scenarios down here on planet Earth. So we'll, uh, we'll talk about that uh, in the next couple of weeks a little bit more as we've been sort of covering it as the day approaches as Teutatis will be uh, coming close to the Earth and to the Moon. Other than that, not much happening up there. It's a beautiful night. And uh, take a look outside and enjoy the heavens. We'll be back to you guys in just a few minutes here. We're going to get things going with some music from Fuel. This is called Sunburn on KOPN Radio Orbit. Sky was dark this morning.
KOPN 89.5 FM. This is Mike Hagan. It's about 2.20 a.m. on September 12th, 2004. All right, what's next? Uh, let's see here. Um, 
upcoming guests, let's talk a little bit about what's going to be happening on Orbit in the next few weeks. Next week, I think I'm going to air an interview with Dr. Colin Ross from the Ross Institute of Psychological Trauma. Dr. Ross is an expert in mind control and the U.S. government's involvement, funding, and research in mind control experimentation over the last 75 to 80 years. Uh, probably ongoing research, although a lot of it is not documented right now, but we have evidence of quite a bit of involvement up through the mid-1980s. So that will be a, another interesting show, and uh, we'll air that probably next week, unless I decide to do something else. But that one's in the can, so to speak, and I could put that interview on the air anytime, anytime we decide to. So unless something else comes up, we'll air that interview with Colin Ross next week. And the following week after that, we'll have Lucy Pringle live from the United Kingdom, live from England. Lucy and I will be talking about crop circles and crop formations. She's a researcher who's been involved in uh, this particular line of research for over 20 years and is recognized as an expert in the field, no pun intended. And uh, Lucy will have lots of interesting information to share with you all, too. So that's coming up in a couple of weeks. Dennis McKenna, uh, a close uh, associate of mine and uh, someone whose brother I was very close to a number of years ago. Hopefully we'll have Dennis on the air here. We're still trying to tie down a date to, to have him on the air. And we'll be talking about hallucinogenic plants and uh, some of nature's products such as dimethyltryptamine and mescaline and psilocybin things that are found in certain plants around the, the planet that indigenous cultures and others have used for many many years in ritual and uh, in their cultures and a lot of uh, a lot of people have actually had some benefit from a number of these compounds so Dennis McKenna and I will be talking about those things in just a few weeks here when that comes up. Who else do we have? William Buhlman. Uh, I'm in, in touch with William Buhlman right now. William Buhlman is an author. hasn't written anything for a while, um, but he did write one book in particular that was called Adventures Outside the Body. And he is a person who talks from an, uh, from an experiential level, somebody who has, for a large part of his life, experienced out-of-body travel, uh, the so-called out-of-body experience, near-death experience, these sorts of things. And when, um, when William Buhlman is on the program, it should be pretty interesting because we're going to be talking exactly about those sorts of things. We're going to be talking about lucid dreaming and out-of-body experiences and how those things actually occur and how we can actually, um, how we can actually do things in our own life and uh, practice certain, uh, uh, certain exercises that can allow us to do these things on our own uh, if we actually would, would, uh, would like to. Some people are frightened to death of, uh, no pun intended again, of things like that, but other people are curious and have no fear of leaving this body and actually believe that it's possible. And of course, belief that something is possible is the first and foremost thing in order to make it possible so if you believe that it's possible it certainly is because in this world we live in there is uh, it is a universe of infinite possibility and uh, in an infinite cosmos all dreams are real so 
We'll be talking about that stuff with William Buellman coming up in just a few weeks here. Uh, Kent Stedman, my friend, who you've heard a number of times from Seattle, will be back with us in a few weeks. Kent is a regular guest. He'll probably be on the program once every month, every month and a half, something like that. So we got that to look for as well. Okay, what else? Um, uh, email address. If you have any questions, any comments, any information you'd like to share with me, any information that I've... Uh, put out here on the airwaves that you're more that you're interested in and you'd like more information perhaps you need some source material or you'd like to uh, know a website where you might do some further research on something that you hear on this program you can always email me at orbit radio o r b i t r a d i o orbit radio at aol.com i will also have a website up very shortly that will be Radio Orbit, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T dot com. That's RadioOrbit.com. Only one O in the middle of those uh, two words, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T, RadioOrbit.com. Now, the website is not up yet. I keep saying this every week, and I'm starting to sound like a broken record, um, but uh, almost have it ready. I'm having a little... Uh, little bit of consternation and a little bit of difficulty trying to figure out exactly what our friends in Washington uh, were trying to tell me when they when they signed the Digital Millennium Copyright Act into law back in 1999 or 1998 but it has some has some interesting ramifications and implications for broadcasters such as myself if we try to do webcasts or try to archive uh, past programs and those sorts of things. So I'm just trying to work all the bugs out of that and make sure that I understand exactly uh, exactly where the feds are coming from because uh, I don't want to give them an opportunity to uh, shut down this program or to shut down the website or to find the station or to find me or to do anything like that that might uh, impede the progress of this radio show. So we're working on the website, and uh, hopefully we'll have that taken care of here in just a few weeks, or have, hopefully it'll up, actually be up in a few days and, and have it up by the end of the week, because I really want to get this interview from Ed Griffin that we're going to do tonight. I really want to have that up on the web so that other people can listen to it, because it's an astounding interview, and um, uh, it is something that I really hope a lot of people get a chance to listen to. Okay, we did a little space uh, space weather update just a few minutes ago. Uh, something else happened this last week regarding space-faring things. And you probably heard it in the news. It was a uh, an operation or a project for NASA that was called Genesis. And Genesis was a space probe that was launched in 2001. And its mission was to fly to the sun and to collect solar material uh, from the solar wind and from the general vicinity around the sun uh, that uh, the sun is always spitting off material in the form of solar flares and coronal mass ejections and uh, the solar wind which is something that is a constant uh, well relatively constant phenomenon that we see uh, the magnetic field of the earth blocks a significant part of the radiation that comes from the sun so um, it's very difficult to get a full spectrum analysis of what's really happening on the sun down here at earth because the magnetic field of our planet blocks a lot of that so the idea was to send Genesis up there fly it around the sun for a while and it has a uh, had some uh, collectors, and we don't have to get technical, but uh, it has some collectors on it, which allowed it to collect atomic material 
from the sun. And the idea was it would do this for a couple, three years, collect all this material, and then fly back to Earth or send a capsule back to Earth, which would uh, then be analyzed by the brilliant scientists down at NASA. Well, uh, here's a story from uh, just earlier this week. This is the Associated Press story. Genesis space capsule crashes into desert. And after this story, you're going to hear me go off on a rant because I can't actually believe uh, what we're being told here. But let me just read it to you here from the horse's mouth, okay? This is from Dugway Proving Ground in Utah. Now, also, if you don't know much about Dugway Proving Ground, you might go into uh, one of your favorite search engines on the web, preferably not Google, and uh, you might put in Dugway Proving Ground. And uh, you might also put secret experiment or something like that, and see what that uh, see what that brings up. It might might lead you on a little uh, on an interesting on an interesting. Uh, adventure there. So in any case, this story comes from Dugway Proving Ground, a place that has its, its, its own uh, sort of nefarious history. Okay, so anyway, the Genesis space capsule, which promised scientists potential clues to the origin of the solar system, crashed to Earth on Wednesday after its parachute failed to deploy. It wasn't immediately known whether the cosmic samples had been destroyed, NASA officials believe the fragile disks that hold the atoms would shatter even if the capsule hit the ground with a parachute. And that was the original story, of course. Uh, now they say, we're going to get the pieces out, Roger Ween said, a payload leader for Los Alamos National Laboratory. It's going to be a lot tougher to sort out the pieces of this broken material. Hollywood, now get this, okay? Hollywood stunt pilots had taken off to hook the capsule's parachute, but the refrigerator-sized capsule holding a set of fragile disks containing billions of atoms collected from solar wind hit the desert floor without the parachute opening. The capsule was returning after three years in space as part of a six-year project that cost over $260 million. Okay? All right. This is a $260 million project for NASA. All right? It's a four-year project. They send this probe to the sun to collect material. We'll talk about the material in a minute and what that means. But first of all, let's just talk about the operation, the project to begin with. This is a project that they send to the sun. Okay? They get this thing all the way to the sun. No problem, right? Fly it to the sun, orbit the sun, collect material, solar material from the sun. Then they eject this disk and send it back to Earth. Now, we're supposed to believe that after this project, highly sophisticated project, okay, that they're going to launch this thing back towards Earth. It's going to come at top speed is going to hit the hit the atmosphere of the earth going about 26 27,000 miles an hour it's going to do a burn through the atmosphere like anything re-entering the atmosphere does and then we're going to have two hollywood stunt pilots try to catch the thing with their helicopters what in the hell is going on what kind of story is this uh, i just I, i'm sorry but i've heard in the uh, in the, in the last 5 years i've heard more crap come out of NASA than, uh, than I've seen come out of the Canadian geese that, uh, that like to nest on my property. And I have a real hard time uh, with a number of things. Well, first of all, if this really was the plan, 
if this was the plan that uh, to catch this this probe upon re-entry with a couple of stunt pilots from Hollywood, well, then we have a serious leadership problem at NASA, okay? And that needs to be resolved right away. If it's not the case, and this is just a cover story, as I suspect, well, then it's just more of the same and the beat goes on and this is just another case of uh, your tax dollars being used uh, for something that we really don't know what's going on. Uh, the project name Genesis uh, gives me reason to believe that there was something else going on. The way in which they supposedly were going to retrieve this probe makes me think something else was going on. Come on, they're going to try to catch it with a couple of stunt pilots. Who the heck wrote that? Now, the other thing I want to ask about is what about the materials that are in this craft or that are on the surface of this craft. All right, this thing has been flying around through space for the last three years. Is there no concern of contamination? Has anybody seen the movie The Andromeda Strain? Probably made 30 or 40 years ago. I don't even know, 35 years ago. Does anybody remember the Apollo missions from the late 60s and the 70s? Do you remember what they did with those uh, with those astronauts and with anything that they brought back from space. They quarantined everything for a long period of time and they had a very significant period of time where they would analyze and uh, make sure that uh, there was nothing that could have been brought back to Earth uh, which could have been dangerous to uh, life forms on this planet. Well, all I saw was a disk that looked like it was half buried in the desert of Utah. First of all, I don't understand how the thing couldn't have completely been destroyed when it hit the ground. Of course, that's what the NASA scientists had said would happen originally. They said that uh, if it hit the ground even without a parachute, that um, that the uh, the disks that held these uh, this atomic material that they were interested in would be destroyed anyway. Uh, but of course, we're told now that even without the parachutes, um, that it slammed into the ground, and the the picture that I saw actually didn't even look. It, it looked like whatever it was I was looking at was intact. So, who knows what the what the real story is? But uh, there were people walking right up to that disc, and they showed a couple of uh, recovery guys uh, in the right right next to it, sort of kneeling down in these sort of photo opportunity images, and none of them were wearing wearing any protective gear. There was nothing. Um, Nothing significant uh, being shown whatsoever. So anyway, we're supposed to believe this, and uh, well, if you believe it, I got some, I got some swampland. In fact, I got some extra swampland down in Florida after what's been going on there for the last, for the last few weeks. Uh, but I'll sell it to you cheap, okay? And it'll be a great deal for all of you. So anyway, uh, Genesis, the spacecraft that was uh, supposedly out there studying the sun, who knows what it was really up to, uh, supposedly crashed to Earth after being missed by, uh, by a couple of Hollywood stunt pilots who were supposed to finish off this $260 million operation by catching the spacecraft as it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere with their Hollywood stunt helicopters. Wow. I'll tell you what. It is, a, it is an interesting time we live in, people. We'll be back in a minute. This is Blind Melon. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN.
All right, that was Tones of Home from Blind Melon from their 1992 CD, I want to say, 1992, 93, something like that. Anyway, Blind Melon, KOP on Radio Orbit. Hey, by the way, I wanted to mention when I gave out the uh, email address just a little while ago, let me give the phone numbers here at the station, too. If anybody wants to call in, make a comment, or uh, uh, have anything to say, give me a call here. In the studio, the number is 874-5676. That's area code 573-874-5676 if you're outside of the 573 area code. It's 1-800-895-5676. And uh, if you want to give me a call in a couple hours after this Ed Griffin interview and you got something to say and you want to say it on the air, I'll open up the phone lines then, too, and you can actually be on the air. And that phone number to get on the air is uh, area code 573-443-8255. 443-TALK, T-A-L-K. All right. So that's it, 874-5676 uh, to give me a call in the studio, 443-8255 if you want to get on the air in a little while, but I'm not going to do that till about 4.30 or so. Okay, we got about 20 minutes till the top of the hour. I want to go over a story here uh, that is directly or maybe indirectly related to the interview that I'm going to air in about a half an hour here with G. Edward Griffin. This story, and I'm going to read the story in its entirety. It might take me five minutes or so to read it, but I think it's really important for background information for this interview that we're going to be uh, playing in just a few minutes here. Anyway, uh, this is a story that I found in April of 2001, about five months before the World Trade Center attacks. And uh, it was published in the Baltimore Sun, and uh, it's archived online. It's a real story and about a real book. Uh, and um, it didn't get a whole lot of press, and I think you'll understand why in just a few minutes here. So anyway, let me, let me read this article to you. The article starts, New book on NSA sheds light on secret U.S. terror plan called Cuba Invasion Pretext. And again, this is from the Baltimore Sun. It's written by Scott Shane and Tom Bowman. Washington. U.S. military leaders proposed in 1962. Now remember, this was written, the story was written April 24, 2001. U.S. military leaders proposed in 1962 a secret plan to commit terrorist acts against Americans and blame Cuba to create a pretext for invasion and the ouster of communist leader Fidel Castro, according to a new book about the NSA. We could develop a communist Cuban terror campaign in the Miami area, in other Florida cities, and even in Washington, said one document reportedly prepared by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. We could blow up a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay and blame Cuba, the document says. Casualty lists in the U.S. newspapers would cause a helpful wave of indignation. The plan is laid out in documents signed by the five joint chiefs, but never carried out, according to writer James Bamford in the book Body of Secrets. The new history of Fort Meade-based eavesdropping agency is being released today by Doubleday. The NSA regularly picks up conversations of suspected terrorist financier Osama bin Laden, Bamford also says, and has monitored Chinese and French companies trying to sell missiles to Iran. He provides new details about an Israeli attack on a Navy eavesdropping ship in 1967. Of course, that was the Liberty. 
suggesting that the sinking was deliberate. He also reveals the loss of an entire warehouse full of secret cryptographic gear in the North Vietnamese uh, to the North Vietnamese in 1975 at the end of that war. Bamford, a former investigative reporter for ABC News who wrote The Puzzle Palace about the NSA in 1982, said his new book is based mostly on documents obtained through the Freedom of Information Act or found in government archives. The NSA has never handed me any documents. It was a question of digging for them. He said he was most surprised by the anti-Cuba terror plan, codenamed Operation Northwoods. It may be the most corrupt plan ever created by the U.S. government. Uh, now, this is Mike again just chiming in. This is not in the article. I actually have in my hands right here a copy of Operation Northwoods um, through the Freedom of Information Act. And I'm going to actually read uh, some actual clips right from the document. Again, this is something that's available to anybody if they decide that they'd like to see it with their own eyes. And... Um, I'm going to read some stuff right from the document in just a little while here, but uh, just so you know, I actually do have a copy of it, and I've read the whole thing myself. The Northwoods plan also proposed that if the 1962 launch of John Glenn into orbit were to fail, resulting in the astronaut's death, the U.S. government would publicize fabricated evidence that Cuba had used electronic interference to sabotage the flight. A previously secret document obtained by Bamford offers further suggestions for mayhem to be blamed on Cuba. We could sink a boatload of Cubans en route to Florida. We could foster attempts on lives of the Cubans in the United States, even to the extent of wounding in instances to be widely publicized. The document says another idea was to shoot down a CIA plane des uh, designed to replicate a passenger flight and announce that Cuban forces had shot down the plane. Citing another White House document, Bamford writes that the idea of creating a pretext for the invasion of Cuba might have started with Dwight D. Eisenhower, the former president, in the last weeks of his administration, when the plan for an invasion by Cuban exiles trained in the United States was hatched. Now, this was carried out in, in 1961, soon after Kennedy became president, and the Bay of Pigs invasion proved to be a complete fiasco. Um, Army General Lyman Lemnitzer, chairman of the Chief Joints, presented Operation Northwoods. Now, this was presented to President Kennedy from the Joint Chiefs of Staff, okay? This is not some, some white paper uh, that was done in the, uh, in the bowels of some think tank by some, you know, some, some sadistic fascist, okay? This was prepared for and by the Joint Chiefs of Staff and presented to President Kennedy, Okay, so it was pre presented to Kennedy early 1962, but the president rejected it. Uh, uh, he, he rejected it in March because he wanted no overt U.S. military action against Cuba. In other words, the pretext would be covert, uh, but then the military action, as far as the Joint Chiefs were concerned, would be would be overt. But Kennedy didn't want any overt action going on in Cuba. Lemnitzer and those who served with him in 1962 as the Joint Chiefs of the nation's military branches are all dead. But two former top Kennedy administration officials yesterday uh, said that they were unaware of Operation Northwoods and questioned whether such a plan was ever drafted. Of course, here we have the standard plausible deniability, but of course I have the document in my hand. Uh, I've never heard of Operation Northwoods, never heard of it, and I don't believe it, said Theodore Sorensen, Kennedy's White House special counsel. Obviously, it would be totally illegal as well as totally unwise. 
Well, he's right there, at least. Robert S. McNamara, Kennedy's defense secretary, said, I never heard of it. I can't believe the chiefs were talking about or engaged in what I would call CIA-type operations. Well, right there, he just legitimizes it anyway. So, In any case, uh, I could go on and on about uh, this, but I wanted you to know about Operation Northwoods. And uh, Operation Northwoods, as we just heard, written about in the Baltimore Sun, was a plan put together by the 1961 Joint Chiefs of Staff at the end of the Dwight Eisenhower administration and at the beginning of the Kennedy administration, which basically said that we were going to plan terrorist activities against Americans and Cuban nationals, sometimes to their death, blame it on the Cubans in order to, uh, to present the pretext for an invasion of that country and the removal of Fidel Castro. So, regardless of what you think of Fidel Castro, and I've never, uh, never been a fan of his, this was, the, uh, this was a working plan that made it all the way to the president's office, uh, but was not, uh, was not implemented. So, there you have it. And, uh, like I said, in a few minutes I'm going to come back and we will play... Oh, uh... Actually, I'm going to play some music here right now, and then we'll come back in a second, and I'll read a little bit out of the Northwoods document itself, and then we will uh, we'll go to that interview with G. Edward Griffin. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit, and I'll be back in just a minute. This is Gus, the polar bear from Central Park, tragically hip. On KOPN.
What's troubling Gus? I don't know. Maybe the same thing is troubling me. Hey, I wanted to mention one other thing. There's one other story that I didn't uh, uh, that I didn't finish, and I wanted to mention it, even though it's kind of unrelated. But even maybe maybe it actually is related. But you know, these hurricanes have been hammering Florida, and I don't know if Ivan is there yet. I don't think so. I think in the next couple of days. Um, but uh, they seem to be just coming off the coast of Africa, and then as soon as they're hitting the Atlantic, um, they seem to be sort of driven on this course. Um, and they're, man, coming off like a rail gun, bang, 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 just right off one after another, and uh, kind of like those solar flares that we were seeing a, a month ago. But in any case, I got an interesting email, and uh, I'm just going to relate it here to you. Now, of course, this is one that uh, you can take with a grain of salt if you like. However, I do uh, know the work of Colonel Tom Bearden, and uh, this, uh, uh, this comes from his website, and when I got it, I decided this is maybe somebody that we need to talk to. We'll try to get Bearden on the air here, uh, Colonel Bearden. Um, in any case, uh, there has been some speculation that these storms are being manipulated. And uh, if, you don't, uh, if you're not familiar with weather manipulation or the idea that that might be possible, um, there are a number of uh, documents out there in the public record that you can view. One of them, um, uh, an Air Force white paper. And it's called Owning the Weather, uh, um, Weather as a Force Multiplier. Now, if you know what a force multiplier is, that means, uh, uh, say you have 100 troops on the battlefield. Well, if you have a force multiplier of a factor 5, uh, whatever that particular device is or whatever that technology is, that, that, that takes your 100 guys and makes them uh, effectively uh, as capable as 500 guys. So that's sort of what a force multiplier means. But in any case... Uh, uh, the Air Force is actively researching this, and uh, they actually have written a paper that's out there in the public domain called uh, Owning the Weather, Using Weather as a Force Multiplier. Um, and that's a pretty current piece of work, but, but this technology, uh, or at least the research, has gone on for quite some time um, if what uh, Colonel Bearden says uh, is true. And, and I'll get, try to get Tom Bearden on the air here someday. But in any case, uh, this is what it says in my email here. Um, Engineering the weather is duck soup. They tested that over the U.S. in 1967 and entered upon continuing operations over North America on July 4, 1976, as a grim kind of KGB bicentennial gift to the United States. Uh, now, the idea is that the Russians have uh, uh, been using this technology for some time, and that's what Bearden has been saying for a long time. Um, they use a, uh, a device that's called an interferometer uh, in any case, if you're interested in this, you can send me an email at orbitradio.com, and I'll get you some, uh, some technical information. Otherwise, I'm not going to go into it here, but uh, just listen to this. First, the interferometers can deliberately make high-pressure areas. Uh, in other words, they cool the air so it sort of shrinks, um, and uh, its footprint pressure on the ground increases because the density increases, okay? So first of all, you take an interferometer and you deliberately make a high pressure area. Um, then you can also create low pressure areas. In other words, you heat the air so that it expands and, it, and, then, and then the pressure on the ground above that particular area decreases. And, and, uh, and then, well, if you can make highs and lows like this wherever you wish, um, then uh, you can slowly move them along a given path, and uh, and the highs and the lows will sort of entrain the jet stream and basically steer the weather. So 
this is the concept, and the uh, technology is called scalar technology. And people uh, may be familiar with a project that goes on in Alaska, and there are also some other ones around the planet now, but HARP, H-A-A-R-P, is the anagram, um, but uh, HARP is a so-called high-altitude auroral research project, and uh, it is supposed to be quite innocent, but HARP is uh, one of these uh, places where scalar technologies are being utilized, and uh, that, that, that's, that's in, in my opinion. So, in any case, we've got all these hurricanes flying around and uh, um, seem to be directed somehow, uh, at least some people seem to think so, and I just thought I'd throw that out there. So, if you're interested in scalar technologies and weather manipulation, uh, this is another thing that, although it may sound like it's in the realm of fantasy or science fiction, it is not, and uh, is a real deal, and in fact, Khrushchev uh, uh, talked about this sort of technology many, many years ago in the Soviet Union, so uh, so that's that. Okay, um, I'm going to back away from the mic for a second, because I want to grab this, uh, I want to grab this document, the Northwoods document, which I have here, and... Um, let me just uh, let me just start off by uh, uh, by describing the front page here. Top secret special handling, handling no foreigners, etc. If you're familiar with government documents, that's what they look like, and uh, you know it's stamped um, uh, as unclassified. So I'm not reading a piece of classified material here, uh, so you don't have to worry. I'm not breaking any sort of national security laws or anything like that. Um, in any case, uh, this is dated March 13th, 1962, Memorandum for the Secretary of Defense, and this comes on the Joint Chiefs of Staff letterhead uh, uh, from 25 Washington, D.C. The subject of this document is titled Justification for U.S. Military Intervention in Cuba. Now, there are 15 pages here, and I'm not going to read them all to you, obviously. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit. And before I do that, uh, I'm going to give us, uh, take care of a little business here. You are listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's more than radio. It's community radio. And it's also the only place around here where you're going to hear quotes from the Northwoods document. Okay. Subject, the justification for U.S. military intervention in Cuba. Number one, the Joint Chiefs of Staff have considered the attached memorandum for Chief of Operations Cuba Project. Now, who knows what the, what the Cuba Project was. Uh, you know, it's, all these projects have sort of sub-projects, and Northwoods was no doubt a sub-project of another project. And, um, you know, the, uh, the rabbit hole just goes, uh, goes on and on and on. So, in any case... Uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff have considered the attached memorandum for the Chief of Operations Cuba Project, which responds to a request of that office for brief but precise description of pretexts which would provide justification for U.S. military intervention in Cuba. It goes on to list a couple of other things, and it is signed L.L. Lemnitzer, Chairman, Joint Chiefs of Staff, and it enclosed, and then it has an, it lists an enclosure. Now the enclosure uh, we're going to skip to because the enclosure is where they go into detail of what the uh, what they actually might do operationally to uh, 
to instigate this war or to or, or to create a pretext for uh, for military intervention in Cuba in 1962. Uh, okay, on page two, uh, we have what is outlined as the problem. Number one, as requested by Chief of Operations, Cuba Project, the Joint Chiefs are to indicate brief but precise description of pretexts which they consider would provide justification for U.S. military intervention in Cuba. So that's basically just another, uh, another way of saying what they said on the opening title page. They go through that a number of times in these documents. If you read government documents, you'll find that they are quite repetitive. Um, they say the same things over and over. Um, in, in 15 pages here, uh, they could have done it in about five probably, but the, but the bulk of it is this appendix, and the appendix is where the meat is, and that's what we're going to read a little bit out of right now. Okay, uh, annex to appendix to enclosure A, pretext to justify U.S. military intervention in Cuba. Note, the courses of action which follow are a preliminary submission suitable only for planning purposes. They are, arranged, they are arranged neither chronologically nor in ascending order. Together with similar inputs from other agencies, they are intended to provide a point of departure for the deployment of a single integrated time-phased plan. Such a plan would permit the evaluation of individual projects within the context of cumulative correlated actions designed to lead inexorably to the objective of adequate justification for U.S. military intervention in Cuba. Number one, since it would seem desirable to use legitimate provocation as the basis for U.S. military intervention in Cuba, a cover and deception plan to include requisite preliminary actions such as has been developed in response to task 33 again ask yourself what is task 33 could be executed as an initial effort to provoke Cuban reactions harassment plus deceptive actions to convince the Cubans of imminent invasion would be emphasized our military posture throughout execution of the plan will allow a rapid change from exercise to intervention if Cuban response justifies. Number two, a series of well-coordinated incidents will be planned to take place in and around Guantanamo. There's a familiar name, huh? A familiar name, and not all that new. It will take place in and around Guantanamo to give genuine appearance to being done by hostile Cuban forces. Subsection A, incidents to establish a credible attack, not in any particular order. Start rumors, use clandestine radio, land friendly Cubans in uniform over the fence to stage attack on base. Capture friendly Cuban saboteurs inside the base. Start riots near the base at the main gate. Blow up ammunition inside the base. Start fires. Burn aircraft. Sabotage aircraft on the airbase. Lob mortar shells from outside of base into base. Damage the installations. Capture assault teams approaching from the sea or vicinity of Guantanamo City. Capture military group which storms the base. Sabotage a ship in the harbor. Create large fires. Nephthalene. Nephthalene. Okay, there's a word right at the end of number eight. Nephthalene. Sabotage ship in the harbor. Large fires. Nephthalene. What is nephthalene? It's napalm. Okay? So that was just an, uh, uh, just an interesting idea. That sounds like a great idea. Okay, sabotage the ship in the harbor by napalming it. Uh, number 11. 
sink a ship near the harbor entrance, conduct funerals for for mock victims. My gosh. Uh, letter B, the United States would respond by, e- by executing offensive operations to secure water and power supplies, destroying artillery and mortar emplacements which threaten the base. C, commence large-scale United States military operations. Uh, number three, a remember the main incident could be arranged in several forms. We could blow up a ship. This is letter A. We could blow up a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay and blame Cuba. I'm going to repeat that. We could blow up a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay and blame Cuba. We could blow up a drone. This is letter B. We could blow up a drone, unmanned vessel, anywhere in the Cuban waters. We could arrange to cause such incident in the vicinity of Havana or Santiago. That's a spectacular result of a Cuban attack from the air or sea or both. Uh, Casualty lists in the U.S. paper would cause a helpful wave of national indignation. We could develop a communist Cuban terror campaign in Miami. We could sink a boatload of Cubans en route to Florida. And then in parentheses there they have real or simulated. They go on to talk about aircraft that they could use, and they could shoot aircraft down out of the sky. Um, And that they would... uh, they would use drone aircraft and substitute a drone aircraft for a civilian aircraft and, 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 and basically make a big magic trick, right? What you, and, I, and I'm not quoting from the document anymore, but you get the point of the document. And if anybody wants a copy of the document, I'll send it to you at orbitradio at AOL.com. In any case, uh, they... They also talk about shooting aircraft down and, like I say, doing these big magic tricks where they would, uh, they'd have an airplane um, take off as uh, normal with passengers. That, that particular airplane would have a flight plane, fl- uh, pardon me, a flight plan that would take it over Cuba. Uh, somewhere along the flight path, they would divert that plane and have that land secretly. In the meantime, they would launch a drone aircraft. Now, which brings up a whole nother, uh, another subject. They talk in the Northwoods documents about drone aircraft. This is in 1962. Okay, so in 1962, they were talking about drone aircraft, which means remotely piloted or remotely controlled aircraft. That's 40 years ago. Well, if you look in the news today, if you go back over the last couple of years, you will find stories about remote-controlled aircraft and about drones and about how cutting-edge the technology is and about how uh, um, uh, it's, it's now possible uh, you know, to fly planes and land them remotely. Well, uh, they talked about it in the Northwoods document 42 years ago. All right, So we are being hoodwinked in many occasions, and there are certain things that have to be kept secret, I understand, but there are certain things that also need to be known. So uh, that's what was going on with Northwoods and Operation Northwoods back in 1962, and as I said, that was a a project that was was presented by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to President John F. Kennedy in 1962. Uh, I wanted to do that... as a preface to my interview with G. Edward Griffin. We'll be back with that in just a few minutes. And uh, it is a taped interview, so I'll get that ready. It'll take me just a couple minutes. Enjoy another little piece of music here. This is a song called Burn. It is from Bruce Coburn. And uh, 
We'll be back with G. Edward Griffin. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. If anybody wants to call me during this interview with a question or a comment, the number is 874-5676, 1-800-895-5676. Radio Orbit, KOPN. I'm going to get my turn. 
Good evening or good morning to you wherever you may be. I'm Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. My guest tonight is G. Edward Griffin. Mr. Griffin is a writer and a documentary film producer with a knack for tackling difficult subject matter. Um, a few of his many books include World Without Cancer, Moles in High Places, More Deadly Than War, The Grand Design, and of course, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Uh, Jekyll Island, of course, considered by many to be the preeminent work on the Federal Reserve System and uh, the nature of that institution. I think now... Um, probably close to 10 years old, and I don't, I'm not sure how many copies sold, but in any case, uh, Mr. Griffin is a recipient of the uh, Telly Award for Excellence in Television Production. He is a contributing editor to the New American Magazine. He is the creator of RealityZone.com, of which I visit frequently. Uh, he is president of American Media, uh, the, the publishing and video uh, production company that he owns uh, and operates. He has served on the board of directors of the National Health Federation, the International Association of Cancer Victors and Friends. He is the founder and president of the Cancer Cure Foundation, and he is also the founder and president of the Freedom Force International. And uh, tonight on this uh, the special September 11th edition of Radio Orbit. We'll be discussing um, Ed's observations and opinions on what, what happened that day three years ago and what's happened since and what we might uh, expect to be coming next. So without further delay, I am really pleased to bring, uh, bring you all Mr. G. Edward Griffin. Uh, Ed, hey, thanks a lot for being uh, here on Radio Orbit tonight. Well, you're very welcome. Mike. Great. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it, uh, um, it's it's a real interest time, uh, interesting time that we're uh, in right now, and I I um, uh, had a strange uh, thing happen. I had a friend over at my house not uh, not long ago, and he I have a uh, a number of bookshelves in my main room littered with all kinds of uh, interesting books from of about a lot of different uh, subjects, and he happened to pull down um, Jekyll Island. And uh, without my prompting him or anything, and he asked me a little bit about it, and this was about a month and a half ago or so, and and uh, I had just uh, uh, started getting my radio show going, and I thought right then I need to talk to Ed Griffin, especially right now. I think it's critical. So anyway, I'm uh, really uh, now it's come to fruition. I couldn't be more pleased to have you here. So, well, I'm ready to go. What what are we talking about? Okay. Um, well. First, let's do a little bit about your background. Um, I, I only mentioned a couple of the things that you've been involved in over all these years, and, and your, your background just uh, uh, covers a very diverse range of topics and stuff. So I'm kind of interested in just kind of where you came from and what kind of got you going and how you got involved in some of the things that you're interested in. Okay, Mike, it's probably the, the least important and uh, undoubtedly the most boring part of this whole thing. But, <laughs> right. Uh, my background is, is very simple. I came through the educational system like so many people. I went through the University of Michigan. I got a very liberal education. Uh, I really thought the world was rosy when I came out. I was uh, determined to get a, a good job and participate in the great American dream. Um, I uh, majored in speech and communications, and so I thought I would go into television or motion picture work, okay. which brought me out to California. And when I got out here, I discovered that uh, there was a lot of talent, a lot and better than mine out here looking for that great break <laughs> and a lot of these guys were washing cars and bussing dishes and by this time I had a, a beautiful wife and a couple of great little kids and well one kid and one on the way and I decided hmm I better get a real job you know? uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. so I went to work for a large uh, insurance company in their group insurance department doing uh, analysis of policies and um, all kinds of technical work and some sales work. Anyway, to make a long story short, I w 
carved a little niche out in a, in a large insurance company. I thought I was going to make it all the way to be a vice president someday mm-hmm. in New York with a brass plaque at my desk and so forth. Everything was on, on course. Okay. Right. And, and then I, I ran into some material. I heard a speech or saw a movie. And basically what these guys were telling me was that my view of the world was wrong that there were problems out there, and they began to attack some of my sacred cows, and I did not like it. Mm-hmm. I, just for, I never will forget, this was back in about 1959, 1960. Okay. And uh, I heard this one presentation in which they were saying uh, negative things about that glorious organization called the United Nations. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I had been just through the school system, and I knew that our last best hope for peace was in a world united in peace and brotherhood and the United Nations was it but they were telling me things that there were supposedly uh, currents and agendas behind the scenes that we weren't aware of that weren't so rosy mm-hmm. so anyway I rejected it all of course it was contrary to everything I'd been taught and everything I believed but it, it gnawed on me because there were some possibilities I thought that this might be true so I did the most unthinkable thing for me at that time I went to the library what an interesting concept yeah, what an interesting concept to go to a public library when you didn't have to you know it wasn't part of an exam or anything right. didn't have to pass the course I actually went to the library to see if I could get some books on this which was a huge mistake because it changed my life right. I began to get some books most of them were written by uh, people who were very much uh, in favor of the United Nations there were very few books available in, in those days, which had anything critical to say about it at all. But I did run across some eyewitness accounts of the first UN peacekeeping operation, so-called, in the Congo. Um, Ed, when when was that? Well, Uh, now you've got me. That was about just a a year before or so. You know, the uh, the, uh, Congo had a a complete breakdown in law and order, and there was one of the provinces called Katanga, Mm -hmm. um, was the only province in the entire Congo uh, which um, didn't go into chaos. And so the UN peacekeeping forces went in there supposedly to put down all of the bloodshed and all the violence and all the revolution. But instead of going into the uh, provinces where all of that was going on, they went into the only province where they didn't need them, where everything was quite peaceful and there was law and order, and that was Katanga. Mm-hmm. And they actually brought war to a peaceful area. I couldn't believe what I was reading. And I thought, this just doesn't make sense. Why would they do this? So I'm getting into more detail than I intended to. It was that kind of thing. Well, yeah, and it's worth hearing because... Well, it just uh, jarred me, you know. Right. And then I began to look more critically at, at who the people were who were running the U.N., and I saw the great difference between the platitudes which they were speaking and the systems which they came from and which they supported. Right. You know, most of those people at the U.N. come from regimes which are tin-horn despotisms or uh, dictatorships of one kind or or another and and to think that we would submerge our sovereignty and have our life determined by a majority vote of all these people from parts of the world where let's face it many of these leaders who go to the u.n got there because they assassinated the people ahead of them right they're murderers you know right right and that but once they get to the u.n they start speaking about you know, uh, uh, human rights and right. all these things. and brotherhood and all this. Brotherhood. Right. And I thought, wow, where have I been all my life? <laughs> so anyway, that's what started, I mean, okay. Mike. And um, so I became a sort of a, 
a half-baked expert on Katanga and what was going on there. And then that broadened into an analysis of the so-called Covenant of Human Rights at the UN. And I began to give speeches on a second look at the United Nations. So by and now, by, by, at that time, you had pretty much... Uh, the, the insurance career was pretty much out the window at that point? No, no, I was still uh, tooling along on that pretty All right, well. so you were balancing those two together, okay. Yeah, I was still uh, on a, a career course, uh, but I, more and more of my attention was being devoted right. to this right. in the evenings and in my spare time. Boy, that sounds like a familiar story to what I do. I, I, I work during the day a regular uh, a regular uh, job, like like most people, and uh, I do this in the uh, once, well, I do this quite a bit during the evenings of the week, but I air my show once a week, but I tell you, I could, if, if, if I could uh, find Find a way to take care of my family doing it. Um, I would do it. I would do it every day if I could. Well, you know? Mike, there, you, you and I, were, <laughs> you were at the same point where I was at that stage. And you know, a lot of people did not want to hear what I had to say right, right. because it shattered their their comfort zone, just like mine was shattered. Yeah. And and so, um, well, anyway, to make a long story short, I I decided this was serious enough, and I could see that we were headed downhill, not just at the international level, but a lot of things were happening happening domestically that I didn't like. Right. I saw the growth of government everywhere. Uh, a lot of it supposedly to fight communism. Right. We were adopting tenets of communism right here at home, supposedly to fight communism abroad, and that didn't make much sense to me. So and I became very alarmed, and, uh, and I quit my job. My wife thought I was crazy. In fact, she was right. I was crazy. <laughs> quit my job, and I went into full-time work in uh, giving speeches and writing and mm -hmm. producing some very inexpensive documentary films. Okay. So that was in the 1960s, and I've just been at it ever since. Wow. I've written a couple of books which, uh, much to my amazement, have been uh, sold pretty well. So it's kept groceries on the table, and uh, yeah. I continue to, to pursue the crusade that I think is so important for all of us. Wow. Well, that's. Uh, I'm, I'm. I'm glad we took the time to do a little bit of background because I think it's important for people to uh, uh, to have a little bit of frame of reference from where you came from and and, and how you got involved in this sort of stuff. So, um, we'll. Uh, why don't we uh, move on a little bit? Um, as as I said um, earlier, we're 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 doing a special edition of this program um, in honor of those people who died on September 11th and their family members and all the other people that were affected by the events that happened that day, the ripple effects of which are still being felt and perhaps getting stronger. So in any case, uh, we wanted to do a special show for September 11th, and that's what we're doing here tonight. Now, even though you are very familiar and uh, well-versed in so much, um, I'd like to uh, ask your, pin uh, your opinion and your observations about what happened um, that day uh, three years ago. And... Um, uh, from your perspective, what uh, uh, really what went down and what it meant? That's a that's a hard place to begin, Mike. Uh, you know, I have um, I have this this feeling that uh, if you try and understand an event by uh, just looking at what happened at, at the moment, mm -hmm. if, if somebody walks up to you, or if you see somebody walk up to someone on the street and haul off and hit them with their fist and knock them down, uh, if you just look at that event, you you have no idea of why. Uh -huh. This person did that. Right. You don't even know who was at fault. Maybe you just assume that the one that did the striking was the one who was to blame, but you don't know what this other fellow did to this first person beforehand. You don't know anything. So it's impossible to judge an event just by looking at the event. Okay, agreed, agreed. Occurrence. Agreed. So, and, and certainly what happened on 9-11 fits that uh, category. Um, now, I go to other extremes. I, you know, the old saying that uh, the... The past is, is, a, is a guide to the present is so true. 
But I have a tendency to go <laughs> way, way into the past. Right. You know, <laughs> it's almost funny. People say, oh, my God, there he goes again. Mm -hmm. But it's really necessary to understand how we and why we are where we are today unless we know the path, the long path that we took to get there. And unfortunately, the events that led up to 9-11 didn't begin on 9-10. Well, all right. Well, I think that uh, then let, let's do a little bit of that background then and try to, try to, try to educate uh, and put some information out there so we can, so we can frame out that event so we kind of have that, that, uh, that frame of reference. Well, uh, I'm glad you, you give me permission to do that. Um, I have constructed a series of seminars to do this uh, properly, and it literally takes about 10 hours to do that. Wow. Now, obviously, we don't have anywhere near that time, nor would anybody have the patience to listen to it. But um, I am going to try and summarize some of that into uh, a little packaged form. Uh, I go back to 1954. And that's, re that's really not the beginning of the story, but it's a good place to begin because uh, it's where the action begins. Okay. And, uh, you know, if there's no action in the scene, if there's no action in the story, you soon lose your interest in the story. That's right. But there was a lot of action in 1954, and it began with a very interesting character that I had a chance to meet um, in person before he passed away in the 70s. His name was Norman Dodd. Hmm. And Norman Dodd was the chief investigator for the Congressional Committee to investigate tax-exempt foundations. It was called the Reese Committee in those days. I had read his testimony in an obscure government document that you know, wasn't well publicized. Certainly not many people read it, but it just blew my socks off. But in the public it. record, right? It's, it's in the public record, yeah. Amazing. Ama amazing how much of this stuff is, you know. Oh, right. yeah, it's there if you right. want to dig for it. But, you know, if it doesn't show up on television or wind up in the bookstore as a bestseller, right. we don't even know it exists for the most part. And, you know, the uh, and, and I won't uh, jump in much here, but just, uh, just the, the year... Uh, the year in and of itself, 1954, though, you know, those years shortly after World War II were, were such watershed years for so many of these things, too. You know, it's just amazing. So Yeah, it really was. So, well, anyway, uh, I had a chance to interview Norman Dodd. I happened to be back in Virginia, which is where he lived, and I had a, a, a television crew with me. We were producing a TV documentary on another topic, and uh, we had some time off, and I knew that he lived in the Virginia area, so I found him in the telephone directory, which was kind of a miracle. He was right there. I called him, and I asked him if he was the same Norman Dodd who had testified before uh, the committees or had been the uh, chief investigator for the uh, committees. He said, yes, that's, that's who I am. So you just called him? I just called him, yeah. <laughs> okay. I've had amazing luck getting hold of people like that. Okay. And uh, this was one of those uh, serendipitous days. So I asked him if he'd be willing to um, put a tie on and come on over and sit in front of our cameras while I um, talked to him and just asked him about his career. Now, he was really up in years, and I knew his health was failing, or I'd heard that, and it turned out to be true. So we really got him at practically the last moment that he was able to tell his story. So we were quite fortunate, and we do have it on videotape. We put it out. We call it the hidden agenda. Wonderful. But let me just tell you the essence of that story. Norman Dodd, uh, was uh, his job was to investigate the... Uh, the giant tax-exempt foundations to see if what they were doing might not be 
the phrase they used in those days, un-American, mm-hmm. because there was a lot of suspicion that these foundations were putting tremendous amounts of money behind causes and individuals which uh, espoused uh, un-American activities. And their definition of the word un-American was that anything that sought to bring about uh, political change in America outside of constitutional means Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was un-American. If you wanted to change anything in society, you should do it according to the Constitution, right out in the open and so forth. But there were movements that were doing it behind the scenes that weren't telling anybody what they were doing, and they were deceiving as to what their two true motives were and, and so forth. So they thought that would be a good definition for what was American versus un-American. And they felt that the tax-exempt foundations were funding uh, individuals and movements which were using unconstitutional and therefore un-American methods. So his purpose was to investigate and to see if there was any truth to that and to get to it. So anyway, to make this story a little shorter, uh, he said he, he uh, this is all on television and all on video, you can see it, right. his own words, but this is what he said. He said one day he got a call from Mr. Rowan Gaither, who was the president of the Ford Foundation in New York. Uh-huh. And, of course, that, even in those days, was a huge, giant foundation. Right, right, Tremendous right. amounts of money to throw around. Right. And Gaither said, uh, well, Mr. Dodd, uh, uh, do you come to New York very often? And he said, well, once in a while. I said, would you like to stop by our offices when you're here next? And, of course, that was what was on... Uh, Norman Dodd's agenda anyway. He said, well, yes, I'd very much like to do that. So, sure, you got the invite. <laughs> so on his next trip, he visited Rowan Gaither at the Ford Foundation, and he describes in great detail how he was sitting there in this very plush office. He said, without even waiting for further conversation, just after a few amenities, Gaither says, Mr. Dodd, would you like to know what we do here at the foundation? Mm-hmm. And Dodd says, well, yes, I'd like very much to know. That's my job, actually. And he said, Gaither launched into this lengthy explanation, and he said, basically, we have been following directives ever since the end of the war, directives emanating from the White House. And the substance of those directives is so to change life in the United States so that it can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. And Dodd said he almost fell off of his chair when he heard that. Oh, my God. He said, what did you say? Right. <laughs> so he repeated that that's what we're here to do. And Dodd uh, says, well, you know, Mr. Gaither, you can do anything you want to with your grant-making powers, but don't you think you have an obligation to tell the American people and tell Congress what you just told me? Mm-hmm. And Gaither said, we would never dream of doing such a thing. Well, a further conversation revealed that what they meant by changing life in the United States to be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union didn't have so much to do with the Soviet Union as it did with the fact that they wanted to merge the United States with all nations of the world, including the Soviet Union, and they felt that the Soviet Union was probably at that time at the most extreme opposite end of the political spectrum from the United States, so that if you could do it with the Soviet Union, you could do it with any other country of the world. Okay, that makes sense. sense. The real goal was not the Soviet Union, but a world union of all nations, including some of the most totalitarian nations that you could possibly think of. Mm -hmm. And so Dodd explains that how this really reeled him, and he thought how ridiculous this would be, that anybody in their right mind 
could think that they could change life in the United States to that extreme extent. I mean, we'd have to give up our our culture, our political system, our concept of justice, our whole legal system, mm-hmm. uh, our human rights. Uh, everything would have to be drastically altered. He said, there's no way in the world that these people could change life in the United States to bring that about. Huh. And then he, then he said his next shock came when he visited the offices of the Carnegie Endowment Fund for International Peace. Now, that, again, is one of the huge foundations. Right, right, right. And uh, when he visited those people, he said the president of the foundation said to him, Mr. Dodd, you have a lot of questions, and it would be tedious for us to answer those questions. He said, I have a counterproposal. I suggest that you send a member of your staff to our boardroom or one of our offices here, and we will open up the minutes of all of the meetings of the Carnegie Fund from the day of its inception. You can read the minutes, you can transcribe them, and you then on your own can find out exactly what we here at the Carnegie Endowment Fund are doing. And Dodd says, again, he almost fell off of his chair because he, he didn't think that they really knew what was in those minutes themselves. He had a pretty good idea. Right. But the, um, the president was newly appointed. He hadn't been with the foundation that long. Uh, he, he came right after Alger Hiss, who had been the previous president. Mm-hmm. With um, an interesting history of his own. That's an interesting history of its own, yes. And uh, he said the council, or the, or the legal council that was there, present at the meeting, were very young men. And he just assumed that these guys had never read the minutes themselves, had no idea it was in there. So he immediately accepted. My gosh. So he sent a member of his... Uh, <laughs> am I taking too long to tell No, you this story? is wonderful, actually. In, fa- in fact, uh, and we'll, I'll let you go for another minute or two, and then we'll take a break, and we'll, co- and we'll come back. But we've got plenty of time, so uh, All right. this, is, this, is, uh, this is exactly what's needed, I think. Uh, well, so. these, these uh, thoughts flood through my mind as I tell the story, because I, I spoke with Norman Dodd so you know, closely, and then, of course, we edited the videotape, and I heard his presentation over and over again as we did the edit. So I remember the words almost to the, to the exact word. Right, anyway, he said that they sent a member of his staff to do the job. Her name was uh, Catherine Casey. She was an interesting lady. She was an attorney herself, but she was put on his staff by those who did not approve of his work. Hmm. And she was there sort of as a watchdog to make sure that the uh, committee didn't get out of hand and uh-huh. turn into uh-huh. some kind of a witch hunt. You know? Okay, okay. And that's not all that uncommon either, I don't think. Yeah, so. and, and no, it's not uncommon. Right. And uh, and she did not approve of what they were doing. Her attitude, he said, was that, you know, foundations do so much good, what could possibly be wrong with them? Right, right. Yeah. So that was her attitude when she went to the foundation, and she did. She spent, I don't recall how many days or weeks, but she went through all of the minutes, and she transcribed the key passages of these. And Dodd said when she came back, she almost lost her mind. My gosh. She was so shocked by what she found that she became useless in her work, and they had to find some other job for her in some other office. And what she found is this. From the very first meeting of the Carnegie Endowment Fund for International Peace, they brought up the question, what will it take to change life in the United States so that people in this country will willingly give up their cherished freedoms, give up their legal system, give up their culture if necessary, their concept of right and wrong, give up their Bill of Rights, give up their Constitution, give up everything so that they can be 
molded into what they called a collectivist society, which is, of course, uh, we'll take a moment later and define that in greater depth, but collectivism is another way of saying a totalitarian system with all-powerful government directing every aspect of our lives. Wow. How do you do that? They, they did, and they debated that for a long time, for the whole first year. And they came to the conclusion at well, the end of the year. Now, hold on a second. I think that's a good place to take a break. Um, we'll have the answer after the break. We'll ta- yeah, we'll come back uh, just after the break, and we'll get back with uh, G. Edward Griffin, uh, a fascinating story. He's telling us a historical story right now, but uh, uh, we've got about an hour, uh, hour and a half left with, uh, with Mr. Griffin, and we're going we're gonna to fast forward uh, 50 years, uh, and we're going to see how this all came together and how it's um, relevant today. So uh, back in just a minute with my... My, my guest, uh, G. Edward Griffin. Uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. All right. Hey, you guys. This is Mike again talking to you live, and I hope you're enjoying this interview that I did uh, just earlier this week with G. Edward Griffin. I'm going to take care of a little business here real fast, and uh, then we'll uh, be back to him in just a few minutes. So hang on. KOPN and the Ragtag Cinema present Control Room. It's a look inside the Al Jazeera network, which claims most of the Arab world's viewers. It'll be playing between September 15 and 21 at the Ragtag Cinema. More information is available at 573-443-4359 or at www.ragtagfilm.com. KOPN and Pacifica Radio are bringing one of the serious national forums, Swing Into Action, Election Issues 2004, to Columbia on September 18th. We are proud to present Bread and Butter, Conditions of Employment, National Expert Bruce Herman, Executive Director of the National Employment Law Project, and Thomas Frank, author of What's the Matter with Kansas. We'll be speaking, discussing, and answering questions on employment here in Missouri and across the nation. Mark your calendars Saturday evening, September 18th. Stay tuned to 89.5 FM for more information. All right, you guys, uh, hang in there. Going to play a little piece of music here, and we'll be back with G.I. Griffin in just about four minutes. Radio Orbit, KOPN. That's KOPN 89.5 FM. Claim claims. 
This is Mike. We're going to get right back to our interview with G. Edward Griffin. Here we go. Welcome back to Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan, your host as always. And uh, I'm back on the line with G. Edward Griffin from uh, Los Angeles, California. And we're in the middle of a real interesting conversation, so we're going to jump right back into it. And, um, okay, where were we at? Well, we were talking about Catherine Casey transcribing the minutes of the Carnegie Endowment Fund for International Peace from the very first meeting it ever had. And uh, she found that uh, the preoccupation of the board of directors at that time was with the question, how do you, how do you change life in the United States right, right. so that it can literally be comfortably merged with totalitarian nations in the world? Okay. And the reason they wanted to do that is to create a one-world government based on the model of collectivism. And they knew that you could not merge the United States with the rest of the world, which was largely totalitarian in one form or another, unless you change life in the United States. How do you convince the American people to give up uh, their Bill of Rights, to give up their concept of uh, human rights, to give up their legal system, mm. and to give up their sovereignty and control of their monetary system, to give up control of their military, all of these things? How do you do that? Mm. 
And the answer they came up with was, there is only one proven method that has ever shown up in history that will cause people to change their, their form of government or their concepts that rapidly, and that was war. They said, under, under times of war, in times of war, people will be so frightened by the specter of, a, of an enemy and the specter of mass destruction and loss of life, loss of property, loss of freedom, that they will accept any measure, any measure that's offered by their leaders as a means of defending themselves against the dreaded enemy. This is the boogeyman, the security, uh, security at the price of freedom. Security at the price of freedom. When people are afraid of their lives, they will give up their freedom in order to protect their lives. And so that's what they came up with. And they came up with the conclusion, therefore, that in order to bring about this ideal system, which they thought would be for the benefit of mankind in the long term, this beautiful model of world government under the, under the uh, uh, system of collectivism, that they would have to have the United States involved in wars. Well, from that point forward now, we can see that the people who were associated with this was not just the board of directors of the Carnegie Endowment Fund right, right, or right. Uh, the well, Ford Foundation or the Guggenheim Foundation. All of these people um, coalesced into an organization, which I'll talk about in a moment. Well, let, let, me, let me ask a question then with regard to that. Um, and, and this may or may not be the right time to ask, but that was the next question is, who's driving this? In other words, the... the um, uh, the organizations that we're talking about have their own leadership, but was, uh, I mean, were they the ones that were driving it, or was, or, or was there, or, or were there organizations behind them? Well, I think that uh, it's probably a little bit of both. Okay. There were organizations that had historical origins before uh, this period of history, and of course, the most uh, well-known of them is the Fabian Society, sure. which was formed in London and still exists, by the way. It's right. still very powerful. Um, Tony Blair, uh, the uh, you know head of the British government, is, is a member of the Fabian Society. Uh, and, but um, most of the influential people that we we're talking about were never members of the Fabian Society per se. But they all uh, endorsed the basic philosophy of the Fabians. Okay. The philosophy of the Fabians was that we had to have a world government based on the model of collectivism, and they thought that would solve all the problems of mankind. And, uh, and therefore, uh, whatever was necessary, if we had to sacrifice a few people along the way to bring that about, we had to have a few wars, a little bit of destruction along the way, it's all worth it because uh, out the other side of it will come this beautiful, rosy future, a world government, peace and brotherhood, uh, based on the model of collectivism. Hmm. And uh, so anyway, that's what, uh, what that, the Fabian Society okay. still exists, uh, but to make a... Uh, Complete that story. Um, the um, on this side of the ocean, uh, there was an organization that was created by um, uh, J.P. Morgan. Now Morgan spent a lot of time in England, and um, and uh, he came over. He was largely influenced by the Fabians, and uh, he set up an organization primarily with his funding that was closely tied with the Fabians, and it was called the Council on Foreign Relations. Okay, a familiar name, the CFR. Yes, so it's very familiar today, sure. but it had its origin uh, from England, and the American branch was the 
Council on Foreign Relations. Okay. Well, after World War I, uh, most of the people that we're talking about became members of the Council on Foreign Relations. And that organization, of course, continues to exist today. Mm -hmm. And when you look at uh, most of the, uh, the people uh, who are holding positions of authority in our government and in our universities and our institutions and media centers and so forth, you find a high degree of the leadership uh, actually being members of the Council on Foreign Relations. Now, the important thing, I think, to know about this is that these people don't consider themselves to be evil men mm -hmm. or women. There are women in the organization, too. Sure. Um, I mean, especially in media, media you find a, a lot of women. Barbara Walters, for example as a you know, member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Right, right. Um, but um, they don't consider themselves to be evil people. They believe that collectivism is the highest ideal and uh, that whatever we need to do to bring the world to that ideal is okay. In fact, it's moral. So, now, I need to take just a moment and talk about this thing called collectivism. Okay. Um, uh, I, I'll take one last fling back at Norman Dodd, if I may, because great, great. he summarized it so well. Uh, in his testimony, he spoke about how the fact that the Carnegie Endowment Fund and the Ford Foundation joined forces with the Guggenheim Foundation, and, and their goal was to, to get control of uh, American education and to change the way history was taught in America. And they set about their vast resources to do that, and they, uh, they gave financial grants to certain young men who were studying for their doctorate degrees, and the ones who agreed with their view of collectivism and the international model of world government, those are the ones that they promoted, and they put money behind them, and they got them into the universities. They funded the universities if, if those universities would put these men into the heads of their history departments, and they funded the uh, historical association with huge amounts of money. And they put these men to work writing the books that were prom promoted by the Historical Association. Right, right. And all of this sort of thing. And so in the, in the process of about 20 years, they were able to completely capture control of the American education system. Uh, the system. And, uh, they, you know, they, they actually said, according to Dodd, that they had to create their own stable of historians. And um, <laughs> so anyway, Dodd talks about taking this group of 20 doctoral candidates for fellowship uh, and they took them uh, to London for a briefing of what was expected of them. Now, London is very important, as you might have guessed, because of my statement before with the Fabian Society. Absolutely. But now this is what Dodd said, and I'm going to quote him directly. He said, That group of 20 historians eventually become the nucleus of the American Historical Association. Then, toward the end of the 1920s, the endowment grants the American Historical Association $400,000, which was a huge, huge amount, amount of money, of money. in 1920, right. for a study of history in a manner which points to what this country can look forward to in the future. That culminates in a seven-volume study, the last volume of which is a summary of the contents of the other six. And the essence of the last volume is, the future of this country belongs to collectivism, administered with characteristic American efficiency. My gosh. Now, there is the clue. And so now we need to really know what this word collectivism 
me. You know, and, and I'd, I'd like to throw something out there, too, for, for the audience right now. I want everyone to... Uh, as you're listening to, to Mr. Griffin speak here, you know, he's talking about events that have gone down decades in the past, uh, uh, in, in this case all the way back to the 1920s, and, and of course we can trace it back even further than that. But uh, with, with, with that perspective, as you're listening to this, consider where we are today. And I just uh, want to make people aware of that. So. You know, that's a very good point, uh, because where we are today is not where we were then, and the whole point of all of this history is that these men with great financial resources at their fingertips decided that they would move America to where we are today. That was their goal, and they said so in plain language. That's right. And they even told us how they were going to do it through control of the educational system and through control of the State Department and through control of the various branches of our government. Are you, um, uh, I'm going to ask you another quick question here to just sort of throw off a tangent, but are you familiar with, uh, with uh, Charlotte uh, Elizabeth Thompson? And uh, that, uh, the oh, yes, the, uh, the Deliberate Dumbing of America is her book. I right, and, um, and, and by the way, uh, uh, we're not here to talk about her book, but we, we will, uh, um, in fact, that's a good time to do this. Let's take a quick break and give um, uh, the, the website address uh, for, uh, uh, for Freedom Force and for uh, Reality Zone, if you don't mind. Well, let's do that, and we'll I'd get like that out there that, so yeah. people can check it out. So. Yes, uh, most of the information which I'm reviewing here is found in great detail with footnoted references and everything at our Freedom Force website, and that's www.freedomforceinternational, all one word, freedomforceinternational.org for organization. So that's freedomforceinternational.org. And then a lot of books and videotapes and audio tapes for our educational materials, many of them written by people from the other side, actually. You'll find those on our commercial website, which is the Reality Zone. And that's www.realityzone.com. Okay, great. And we'll... Um We'll, go, we'll give those out at least uh, another time or two before the end of the program. So, okay, uh, everybody go check them out at realityzone.com and also freedomforceinternational.org. Um, okay, let's get back to uh, what their, uh, their goal was with the education system here. So. Well, their goal with the educational system was, as he stated, to teach uh, students that the, future of, that the future belonged to collectivism administered with characteristic uh, American efficiency. Hmm. So that brings us to the word collectivism. What, what is that all about? As I said earlier, it's kind of a, you can summarize it by saying it's, it's, it's a system of all-powerful government which directs our lives in every minute detail. But it's based on, on certain principles. And um, I've identified five of them. I've been reading collectivist literature for many, many years. And I found that there are really only two philosophical points of view in the, in the Western world that you can have. All of this business about communism versus co uh, uh, capitalism versus Nazism, uh, right-wing versus left-wing, liberals versus conservatives, all of that is nonsense. There's no definition for any of those words. <clears throat> and that when you peel off the labels of such uh, ideologies as communism or fascism or Nazism, you find that underneath they're all the same. Mm -hmm. In the essence, they have a little... Uh, you know, a few bells and whistles on the surface that make them appear different. Right. And they do fight against each other for dominance. I mean, you know, you've heard of gang wars. Right. Uh, they fight for dominance on the street, but they're still gangs. You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gang's a gang, right? Yeah, gang's a gang. Fight. You find a lot of that. Yeah. That's the, the communists fought the Nazis on that basis. Mm -hmm. But uh, there was very little difference between the philosophy of communism and Nazism. 
which made it possible for, for members of the Communist Party to switch over and join the Nazi Party, and vice versa. That happened a lot. Right. Uh, it's just a question of which leader they wanted to follow. But anyway, when you look beneath all of these totalitarian concepts, uh, you find that communism, Nazism, and fascism are merely variants of this thing called collectivism. Right. So you what know, is collectivism? You know, certainly... Uh, um with what happened after World War II, uh, you know, with Paperclip, uh, w it showed that that was exactly true of this country, too. In other words, you know, many uh, scientists and doctors and experts in all these different fields of the sciences uh, were, were, were coveted by the Soviet Union, just like they were coveted here in the, in the United States. And very many of those, uh, of those men and women came over here and, and basically just went, work, went to work for us. And uh, many of them were, 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 uh, uh, were guilty of some pretty serious things. That's right. And they felt just as comfortable here right. as they probably, well, maybe more comfortable. Right, uh, right, it wasn't right. quite so severe here. Amazing. But the point that we'll be getting to later on this discussion is that it's been getting more and more severe with the passage of each year. It sure has. So that where we're headed for now is alarmingly close to the systems we fought tooth and nail against in World War II. Right. You know? And this is where you come out with this whole analysis, and it's, it's not a very pleasant feeling. But in any event, let's go back to this FN. thing called collectivism. Okay. Uh, I've identified five, um, uh, five qualities of collectivism. The first one it has to do with the nature of, of human rights. Um, now, when you look at where do you, the question of where do our rights come from, um, they either are part of us when we're born. They either come with us right. or they're added to us after we're born. Okay, reasonable, reasonable it's a statement. Reason. It's got to be one or the other. Right. Now, the individualist who, who is the, on the opposite side of this discussion, this is, a, this is a contest between individualism and collectivism. The individualist believes that human rights are hardwired. They come with us. In other words, they're hardware, not software. Okay. And uh, that the purpose of government is merely to protect those rights. That's what it says in, in the... Um, Declaration of Independence in America. We say, uh, we talk about uh, inalienable human rights. Right, right. And that the function of government is to protect those rights. Exactly. So that's uh, the concept of individualism. But the collectivists think, no, rights are added to us by the government, that the government grants us our rights. So the Constitution becomes a pretty big problem for the collectivist. A very big problem for the collectivist. They have to get rid of that concept. So they say, you know, rights are granted by, for example, the, the United Nations Covenant on Human Rights on this issue is very clear. It says, in the protection of these rights which are granted by the state, mm -hmm. that's an exact, exact quote. Right, they're granted by the state. Granted by the state. A privilege Ooh, or something like that, right. How many people read that stuff, you know? Wow. You know, if you would read these, uh, these documents with as much care as you'd read a used car sales contract, right, you'd right, never right. sign them. Amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. But anyway, so that's the original, uh, that's one of the issues that divides individualism from collectivism. Individualists know that if you say the state has the power to grant rights, it also has the power to take them away. And that's incompatible with the concept of freedom. It certainly is. Yeah. Now, the... the uh, the next uh, question, uh, or the divides uh, uh, individualism from collectivism, is the origin of state power. Um, individualists believe that the government has no power except what the people give to it. That the power of government is derived from the consent of the governed. Uh, 
which is kind of a basic thought. Mm -hmm. The collectivist believes that government has its own power on its own, to hell with what the individuals say or think. It has a right of its own. It's an entity that's more important than uh, the, the individuals who make it up. Um, if it's true, most people say, well, yeah, we think that the government should have only rights which are given to it. If that's true, then you look at what government does today, and you realize that it has no legitimate right to do most of it, because individuals don't have a right to do those things. Exactly. Let me right. give you an example. Okay. Let's just take a little harmless case where we decide in our community that it's wrong for people to, to uh, open up their shops on Sunday. We think it's morally wrong. We think it's socially wrong. We're going to pass a law that says shop owners must close their shops on Sunday. Okay. And everybody's really happy about that because we're so righteous. Right. But now the question is, do you or I have an, a right as an individual to go to this guy that owns the shop and say, hey, you can't open your shop on Sunday? Well, clearly, you don't have a right to tell him not to open his shop, and I don't have a right to do so. So how can we give that right to our government? Uh -huh. You see, we don't have a right to tell our government to pass a law like that. And this is where the government becomes a power unto itself. Right. When people expect it to do those things which we as individuals do not have a right to do. Wow, I've never thought about it like that. Yeah, and this cuts to the chase on so many things that are... Uh, causing problems today. You know, a little thing about opening a store on Sunday may not seem like anything, uh, but you add them up. Uh, one law here, ten laws there, a thousand laws there. Every year we're adding thousands and thousands of laws which restrict our freedom of action, all of which as an, as an individual law we can say, well, that's a good idea, but they all add up to a, a stifling, suffocating blanket of laws none of which are legitimate because individuals don't have a right to compel these things on their neighbors. Mm -hmm. So there's another point. The third thing is the, is the fact that collectivists believe that the, that the group is more important than the individual and that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number. My gosh. Now, I learned that in school. I mean, doesn't that seem logical? I mean, you don't want... You know, if, if there's one guy that's threatening the lives of a hundred people, you've got to, you know, get rid of that one guy, right? Right. It's like a, you do a head count and see whose interest is large. Well, no, wait a minute. That's not quite the end of it. That's a half. <laughs> that's that's you get half credit for that. Answer, right. You, you know? got to extend the metaphor, right? <laughs> yeah, extend the metaphor. <laughs> there's more to it than that. Right. Um, let's take a, a lynch mob, for example. Now, uh, we think that the majority should rule. If that's all there is to it. Well, then the lynch mob is okay, because there's only one dissenting vote, and he's at the end of the rope. Well, now we think, oh, okay, wait a minute, I guess that, we, 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 the majority should rule, but not to the extent of taking away the rights of the, major, of the minority or an individual. So now we're talking about individuals having a higher right than the group. And as a matter of fact, there is no such thing as a group. That's where, the, that's where the, the trick lies, and that's where we get into trouble. We think of the group as being something that exists, when in fact it is not. It does not. It's an abstraction. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a word concept for many individuals. Right. Uh, just like the word forest. 
is an abstraction for the concept of many trees. Many trees. The forest without the trees is nothing. There's, there is no forest. Exactly. There are only trees. Right, right. So we create this abstract thought of many trees, and we call it forest, and we think it's something that exists when, in fact, it doesn't. Only right. trees right. really exist. Right. And only individuals really Wonderful, exist. wonderful analogy, wonderful yeah. analogy. And so if we sacrifice the rights of an individual for the alleged rights of the group, We've made a huge mistake because there is no such thing as a group. There are only individuals. What we're really meaning is that we've sacrificed the rights of some individuals for the rights of other individuals, and, and we think it's right because the number that, uh, that uh, is being sacrificed is smaller than the number that is benefited. And we think it's a numbers game when, in fact, it is not. We could talk a lot more on that, but that's one of the, one of the really important differences. Wow, yeah, that, uh, I've, nev I've never, you know, uh, although I've heard the, the, the term collectivism, I've, I've, I've read it in context so many times, and stuff, I've never heard it explained quite frankly like that, so I'm glad that we did that. Well, I'm glad, too. I, we need this sort of thing. In fact, I'll remind you and your listeners that we've got all of this in great detail on our Freedom Force website. All right, good. So, all right, let's get to number four. All right. Coercion versus freedom. You know, collectivists really don't believe in freedom. They believe that if something is worth doing, you need to force someone to do it. Coercion is the answer. They think it's all right. You can have freedom to choose the color of your socks that you put on in the morning and a few things like that. But anything important like uh, banking <laughs> <laughs> or control of the media right. or anything that's really important in your right. lives, right. uh, no, nope, we've got to have coercion on that one. Otherwise, freedom won't work. Uh, and... I think the best illustration of that principle is uh, seatbelts. It's kind of a harmless illustration. You know, we all agree that seatbelts are a good idea. Uh, but the collectivist says, okay, if it's a good idea, let's pass a law. Right, you and have force to everybody it. to use it. Right. If, you don't, if you don't agree with us, you're going to go to jail, buddy. Right. Uh, the individualist says, well, I think seatbelts are a good idea, too. But let's not force people to use them. Let's, let's have a little respect for freedom here, okay? Right. You know, now our obligation is to convince people to use seatbelts and to make a good example by our own uh, performance, but not to force people to do things. So there again is is another distinction between collectivism and individualism. Okay. Right. And finally, the fifth thing which I identified on this is the is favoritism versus equality. Uh, collectivists believe that there are favored groups in society. Groups that either because they've had a hard time of it in the past or have had injustices in the past or have handicaps or just because they're more worthy or something, that they should have favored treatment. They should pay less taxes. They should get benefits that are paid for by others. There should be some distribution of wealth away from some classes to others. Or some classes should have privileges which other classes do not. Collectivism is based on the concept of inequality, that we must treat individuals and groups unequally so that we can establish some kind of a justice, which in our mind doesn't exist if we don't treat groups or individuals unequally. Okay. Whereas the individualist believes that regardless of all that, every individual has his own personal merit and should be treated absolutely the same as every other individual. It's absolutely no exceptions. Right, right. So, you know, it's, and it's amazing that, that, that the way that it is sold is completely the opposite. In other words, it, black is white. 
Well, yes, the way all of these things are sold is, is uh, on a very deceptive basis, and it's so appealing. And, you know, I don't pretend to be above it all. I have to, con I think I told you before, I have to confess, when I came into all of this years ago, I was totally a collectivist in my thinking. That's the way I was cranked out of the, of the meat grinder at the university, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, everyone else was the same way. We just didn't, we didn't question any of these guys. Sure, I mean, and I'm, I'm no different. I came from the same system, went through the same, uh, uh, all, all the same uh, sort of steps, and, and eventually it becomes sort of an unlearning thing. You know, you have to unlearn a lot of the stuff that you learned and then be able to go back and learn again. Well, so anyway, that's kind of a short course on collectivism versus individualism, and that's what Norman Dodd was talking about when he was, uh, uh, you know, paraphrasing these people at the Great Foundations, that they were going to change uh, education in America to teach all the students and the generations to follow of the great values and virtues of collectivism, and they have succeeded in doing that. Wow. Now, what's the result of that is that we've produced several generations of very well-educated people who are firm devotees of this thing called collectivism. They are perfectly prepared to sacrifice the individual or small groups of people for the greater good of the greater number. And with that motivation, do you realize there is no atrocity, no crime, no war that you cannot justify as being for the greater good of the greater number? Wow. Now, once you got that firmly in mind and you look at these people who have affiliated with the Council on Foreign Relations and you realize that those people are all, without exception, dedicated to the principle of world government based on the model of collectivism, and then you realize who these people are and what positions they hold in society, and I'm just here to tell you, if you want to see their names and, and see the whole list, you can come to our website, but you probably won't believe it until you check it out for yourself. And, uh, and the left-right uh, really doesn't make a big difference, does oh, it's it? it's a big charade. There's no left-right at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You've and got left-wing collectivism and right-wing collectivism. Right. It's the same. Gosh, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm beating a, beating a dead horse, but I try so hard uh, to try to point out that that uh, you know the whole left-right thing is a total ruse and that then that this divide and rule is, is the game that they're playing and, and, and we've got to recognize that. It is, it is a game and uh, they've spelled it out. They, they even teach it. They tell you how to, how to use it if you're interested in doing so. So well, anyway, when you look at the list of the, of the uh, power centers of society, you know, government agencies, you find that if you made a list of, of all the presidents since the Council on Foreign Relations was founded, all the vice presidents, all the uh, heads of the, uh, the cabinet members, the treasury, head of the treasury, head of the CIA, head of the FBI. Uh, you, you take a list of all of the, uh, of late, the generals who were the joint chiefs of staff, um, the people in the Senate and high-ranking congressmen. You look at the presidents of the universities, the presidents of NBC, CBS, NBC, Turner Broadcasting, uh, you, you could just go on down the list, and you just think, I don't believe what I'm seeing. Right. About 70 to 80 percent of those organizations are firmly in the hands of the count members of the Council on Foreign Relations. Right. Incredible. Now, you have to see it to believe it. Incredible. Now, I, I've forgotten the number, but I think there's about 4,000 members at the present time. Oh, and I've read, I, I've, I've, I've 
I've never read the whole list, but I've read enough of it to make me stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the list is not secret. Uh, right. You can write to the council offices in New York, as I do every year, and I get a current list updated. You know? My gosh. So it's not secret. Uh, and they're very proud of it. And um, so once you then realize that America is in the hands of this rather elite group, and then you realize that they all have this goal of world government based on the model of collectivism, then all of a sudden, snap, 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 all of the great mysteries of history since World War I through the very present, they fall into place. They're, they clear up. because you, you can see this strategy being applied, the deliberate use of war as a means to shake up the American people into accepting a rapid change to give up their liberties and to adopt collectivism in huge chunks. Once that's done, then they can, in fact, be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union and every other nation of the world. Whew. Wow. All right. Well, I think that's another uh, another good place to take a break. Um, my gosh. Uh, well. We're going to get back here in just a minute. Uh, I'm a little speechless right now. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is G. Edward Griffin. Uh, the information in great detail that we're talking about tonight is available at freedomforceinternational.org and uh, lots of other materials available at realityzone.com. No spaces in any of those. We'll be back in a few minutes with my guest, G. Edward Griffin, and we will fast-forward a few years to current events and tie some of the things that are happening today and that have happened in the last few years. We'll tie those in uh, to the framework that we've built over the last hour or so and uh, the history that we've covered during that time. So we'll be back in a minute. This is Radio Orbit on KOPN. All right, you guys, uh, this is Mike. You're in the middle of an interview that I did just a few days ago with G. Edward Griffin. We'll get back into it in just a minute. I'm going to play a little music here, and uh, we'll finish off that interview. So enjoy this. This is The Police, Radio Orbit, KOPN.
All right, we're back. This is Mike Hagan with Radio Orbit. My guest is G. Edward Griffin. We've had an absolutely fascinating conversation for the last hour, and uh, we're going to get right back into it here and uh, continue with some, uh, uh, some more of the history that has led up to uh, the current, uh, current day events. Well, yeah, I, we've covered a lot of ground here, and uh, I, I doubt if it's been really satisfying to uh, someone who's very skeptical on these issues, as, as they should be. I mean, people should be skeptical. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, what would I think? How would I react if I were hearing this for the first time? And I, I'd probably be inclined to say, I, I don't believe any of this stuff, you know. How, how can he say that? And so uh, I would invite anybody that has that, that uh, reaction to um, don't just discard it as an impossibility. S- see what evidence there is on it. And I've been very careful to, uh, to present the evidence. I, I, when I write on these things, I try not to just express my editorial opinion. Um, but I know that you have to defensively prove everything as you go. And so when you come to our website and you, and you come to the passages which discuss some of these things, you'll find... Uh, uh, many, many footnotes which will take you to documents which uh, come primarily from the people themselves who are making these plans and saying these things. So you'll see that it's, I'm not making any of it up. And not only do I give you the documents, I'll tell you where you can find the documents. And so you can go check it out for yourself to see the uh, accuracy of it. Right, and, and, and what 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 Ed says is true, and I say it experientially because it's exactly what happened to me. The first time I was introduced to a lot of this information, I had that exact same reaction. I told the, the gentleman who was a very close friend of mine who originally introduced me to just something that was completely different than what we're talking about, but kind of got me, sort of lit my fuse, you know what I mean? And, and uh, I... I, I, I told him he was nuts, and I, uh, I totally discounted what he said out of hand without investigating, and then I learned what a big mistake that was uh, down the road. So, Yeah, well, it's very tempting, and you know, I'm not trying to pretend like I've got any uh, great uh, wisdom or intelligence. I, and really, none of that's true. I, I just happened to have been fortunate enough to have the curiosity to take me into that library that day. Right. It started me on this path that just it won't let go of me now. Um, but anyway, let's bring this up to the present. And in order to do that, we have to cover a lot of history. Having set the groundwork, that's pretty easy to do. When we realize that these people uh, are interested in changing America and they know that war is the best way of bringing about rapid change in the direction that they want, uh, then it's easy to understand how we got into the two wars, World War I and World War II, that we did. One of the key figures in this drama is uh, a little-known character by the name of Colonel Edward Mandel House. Hmm. Now, he was one of the founders of the Council on Foreign Relations that we were talking about before. And uh, he was probably the most influential man in the Wilson administration. And, in fact, he was the one that got Wilson his job. And I say that literally because he was the one that maneuvered in, in, um, I believe it was in Texas primaries, to get uh, uh, Wilson nominated to the Democrat uh, convention as the presidential candidate. And after Wilson won the election, largely through Mandel House's, uh, Edward Mandel House's influence and his banking associates, I might add, um, then um, Wilson asked uh, House to be his personal advisor, and he moved right into the White House. And in fact, all the time that Woodrow Wilson was in the White House, uh, Colonel Edward Mandel House had two rooms in the White House. He lived there. And uh, there have been books written on this uh, friendship between them. And in one of the books, uh, President Wilson is quoted as saying, Mr. House is my second personality. My he is my independent self. <laughs> His thoughts and mine are one. 
And so some observers think that actually uh, Colonel House uh, was, if not the actual president, uh, he was at least the second president mm-hmm. of the United States. Well, the point of mentioning that is that House was one of the founders of the Council on Foreign Relations, and he wanted to get the United States into war. And, of course, his influence with uh, President Wilson uh, didn't hurt in bringing that about. And, and the history books show how Colonel House was moving back and forth between uh, England and the United States, maneuvering to, to develop events which would trigger enough emotion in the part of the American people that they would endorse getting into a war which previously they wanted no part of. They wanted no part of World War One. So they had to create the public opinion first in order to get it pulled they out. They have to create the public opinion. And to make a long story short, they came up with the, with the possibility of having an American, uh, well, actually it wasn't an American ship, the Lusitania was a British ship, but having a ship sunk with uh, Americans on board, having it sunk by a German submarine. And so they maneuvered to get the Lusitania uh, sunk by German submarines. <laughs> that sounds absurd, doesn't it? But we've got the smoking gun on this. Uh, they, you know, they talked about how they were going to withdraw the British uh, uh, naval support from the Lusitania when it came into German uh, submarine-infested waters. Uh, the Lusitania was given orders to to uh, cut off one of its four boilers, so it was now running at uh, only 75% of speed in an area which was known to be infested with German submarines, making it an easier target. Right. And... Uh, And one of the most revealing things is that the German embassy was greatly alarmed by the fact that there were Americans going on board uh, the embassy in um, New York. And so they paid for advertisements to appear in all of the newspapers on the eastern seaboard and halfway into the midland of the United States, warning Americans uh, not to go on board the Lusitania, that it was uh, going into a war zone and it might be sunk, and they didn't want any Americans on board. And the State Department intervened at that point and contacted every one of those newspapers and threatened them with dire consequences if they published that ad. And there was only one newspaper, which was way back in the Midwest, in Des Moines, Iowa, the Des Moines Register, which actually published the ad, which is how we know about it. Holy cow. Yeah, I've got a copy of it. In my and, 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 you know, with what we just learned about collectivism, that, that it shouldn't be that difficult to believe this. Well, so. no. See, once you understand that the group is more important than the individual. Right. And it, so they had to sacrifice a couple of hundred Americans. Too bad about that. But look at the greater benefit of getting into this war where we could, you know, fight against the Kaiser and a few other things, you know, make the world safe for democracy. Wilson wanted to, to make the United States an international power. He was bored with national sovereignty. He wanted to see the League of Nations formed. And the only way you could do that is to get into the war so that at the end of the war you'd have a right to sit at the peace table and carve up the world. And they talked about this sort of thing. So how do you manipulate the American people into being anxious to get into a war? Well, you get victims. And so there's a lot of history on that. It's probably less dramatic than what we found in World War II. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there is no question about it that the Roosevelt administration wanted to get into World War II so badly uh, to create, at the end of it, a, a United Nations, to get the United States into this world government. They were all collectivists in this government, every one of them. Many of them were members of the Council on Foreign Relations. And the American people, once again, wanted no part of a war so how do you get the American people to accept a war? Not accept it, but to eagerly demand it. Right. And the answer is quite simple. To right. be a victim. Right. And so... 
the history is now clear that Roosevelt and the highest military uh, commanders in, in, in the United States knew that the Japanese were going to make this attack on Pearl Harbor. They knew that the, not only the day but the hour that the fleet left the port in Japan and started sailing toward the United States. They sent out an order through the uh, entire ocean pathway from Japan to Pearl Harbor to clear out all commercial vessels and military vessels to make way so that nobody could accidentally sight the armada coming on the way to uh, uh, to Pearl Harbor. You know, if some commercial right, vessel right, had been there, right. to, hey, what's going on? They'd, yeah, they would the radio ahead. Yeah. yeah, and then the surprise right. would be off. So, you, know, you know, and 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 prior to that, they provoked them into attack to begin with by of cutting course. off the oil and everything else. So. Oh yeah, they they made it inevitable that the Japanese the Japanese had to attack in order to to uh, clear a lane for their oil supply. Right. Okay. And then they had broken the Japanese code. They were reading every one of the Japanese messages regarding the attack, and and so forth. The point is so clear now that they knew the attack was coming, and they did everything possible to prevent the commanders at Pearl Harbor from having any information about it so that we could have a few thousand casualties. Too bad about those young men and women. Too bad. But the greater good for the greater number. Now we're in this glorious war and we can defeat Nazism and we can build a new world right. order based on the model of collectivism. Again, different circumstances, but, ex but exactly the same story with what happened uh, prior to World War One. It's the same story, exactly. You know, for a while, people denied that, uh, oh, Roosevelt didn't do that. Right. Uh, they, those, they didn't do that. Well, now the evidence is so clear. They've changed their story. They say, yeah, he did that, but wasn't it wonderful that he did that? Oh, my Wasn't gosh. that wise? Wasn't it an act of great statesmanship? He knew that the Americans were so stupid, they, they couldn't see the value of getting into a war, so it was necessary to, uh, to have this event to raise their consciousness. Right. And, and you say goes. that sarcastically, I know. I'm saying it sarcastically, right. but they say it very sincerely. Right, right, Yeah, right. there are a lot of books written to that effect now. So now, after having rushed through all of this history, we come to 9-11. And certainly I, many other uh, events in between there that we could probably talk about. Many but, events in between. But, right. you know, once you understand the history, how we got to where we are, from where we were, and the forces at work, you don't need to say anything more. Right. The parallels are so complete. You know, the government is still dominated and the media is still dominated by members of the Council on Foreign Relations. They still have their goal of the creation of a world government based on the model of collectivism. And they still believe that war is the best way to convince the American people to make that final step with nothing but a faint whip, a whimper. They'll say, well, I hate it, but I guess we need it to preserve our freedom. My God. So they give up their freedom to preserve their freedom, supposedly. <sighs> well, uh, there you have it. And um, uh, although we began this program uh, and we're, we're doing a, a special edition uh, in regard to 9-11, we didn't talk directly about 9-11 uh, until right about now, but I think, uh, I think that it should be pretty clear um what uh, what the message is trying to be uh, put across is and i don't really i like like you say it i don't think we don't i don't think we have to explain it any further and, and i don't even like to i like people to come to their own decisions their own conclusions right. but right. uh but but certainly there's some compelling stuff out there that if nothing else needs to look needs to be looked at very closely uh we could we could talk for a for a long long time just about unanswered questions regarding 9-11 so but once you understand history, then the present becomes more clear. Right. The hardest thing we have to deal with is understanding motive. 
people say, I can't believe why would people in high positions in our government deliberately do this? And unless you understand this thing called collectivism, unless you understand the organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations, which are dedicated to uh, bringing it about, then you'll never understand the motive. But once you understand the motive, you can see that these people really think that they're doing something good. Right. And they fully good for mankind. Right. And they fully believe that they are doing the right thing and they're completely uh, completely committed to it. They're committed to it. And and one of them said recently, I believe that our children and grandchildren will sing our praises. My gosh, and I know who that was. Yes. Yeah. That was Richard Pearl. Yeah. Uh well, um okay, here we are three years later. You know, here we are three years later, and we've had uh, we, we we've had Afghanistan. We now have Iraq. We have drums beating in the background about Iran and in numerous other places. Um, is it again the same story? And do we have more of this uh, coming down the pike? And 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 what should we be looking for? Or do we? Or is it right there in front of us? Well, it's right in front of us. Once we understand what we're looking at, uh, and what scares me very much is that the, the same people are running the show and so we have no reason to think that anything is going to be any different in the future until we can change that until we can change and get those people out of there and replace them with people who are not collectivists then we can expect a continuation of what we've had well and the way to change in my opinion is number one to learn and um, for people that are out there listening to this program you can't know just because somebody told you. You have to learn. You have to experience. You have to go through those stages. And if you want to learn more about this stuff, there's no better place uh, than um, uh, than Mr. Griffin's websites. You can go to www.freedomforceinternational.org. You can also go to www.realityzone.com, and there's a tremendous amount of information there, and it will also lead you to other sources for information. Um, uh, uh, Ed has links to all kinds of um, other organizations and other uh, investigators and researchers that are involved in uh, some of this research. And uh, go out there and learn and and make your decisions for yourself. Uh, but but please don't dismiss out of hand because uh, this out of hand dismissal in many cases has led us to where we are today because. Uh, like Mr. Griffin pointed out earlier in the program, we are individuals and we are responsible uh, for the activities of the group. We're all re responsible in some way, shape, or form. Very well said. Very well said. Well, I think uh, I think that's a good place to end the end the program here. Um, and uh, I'd like to uh, maybe maybe we can do another show sometime. I, I I didn't even get a chance to talk about the Federal Reserve, and we we could probably make a whole other show out of that. And it and it is, if not directly, certainly indirectly related to many of the things that we spoke about tonight. Certainly is. So uh, I don't know. We'll talk again uh, um, off the air, and uh, and and maybe decide to do that. But in any case, it's been a been a very valuable program tonight. And uh, for anybody who tuned in um, tuned in a little bit late, uh, my guest has been G. Edward Griffin, and uh, he is a patriot and a visionary. And I couldn't be more proud uh, to have had you on my show tonight, Ed. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again. And also, um, we'll give out the website one more time. And I want to let people know that this show will be archived uh, on my website uh, very shortly. And um, Ed, I'll get you that link too. So if, uh, if people that visit your site might want to uh, uh, listen to this particular interview, then they could, uh, they could hear it with their own two ears. So. Very good, Mike. I appreciate that. All right. Well, once again, thanks. I couldn't, uh, uh, couldn't be more pleased 
pleased, and um, uh, I'll uh, I'll talk to you very soon. All right. Very good. Great. Thanks, Ed. Take care. KOPN Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan. It's about 4.40 a.m. on September 12th, Sunday morning. Stay tuned for Carol Greenspan and Jewish Spectrum coming up in about 21 minutes. And uh, for those of you who were able to hang with me tonight, I hope you enjoyed that interview with G. Edward Griffin. Quite... uh, quite a bunch of uh, astounding information uh, from Mr. Griffin and uh, whether you happen to subscribe to it or whether you don't it's certainly uh, worth investigation and uh, as we mentioned there at the end of the program certainly worth 
something other than a dismissal without investigation. Because right now is a, a critical time, and uh, there are a lot of things going on, and they cannot be summarized in sound bites. It takes quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of effort to go back and do the background research in order to have the right frame of reference in order to understand what's really happening geopolitically around the world. And uh, most people just uh, don't have the time nor the gumption to do that. Uh, it takes a lot of effort and, um, and a lot of motivation. You have to want to know. You have to want to know. Um, in any case, uh, that was G. Edward Griffin, and uh, I think it gave us a lot to think about especially if you heard at the beginning of the program, the first hour, I did a little background and I talked about Operation Northwoods. So uh, Northwoods, combined with the information that Mr. Griffin shared with us, should, if nothing else, put some question marks in people's minds and make them at least be curious to go out there and uh, investigate some of this and try to get some information on their own. So uh, we finished off there with John Lennon, the song Imagine, and a wonderful song, but uh, in this world of duality, two things going on there, too, and I played it for a reason. Um, there's a connection uh, between the Beatles and this whole collectivist thing, and I won't go into it uh, too much, but... Um, what I'd like to do, I always just tell you to go to go to one of your search engines and put in John Lennon, and then put in the word Tavistock, T-A-V-I-S-T-O-C-K, and uh, that should probably be all you need to find out what I'm talking about there. So, anyway, uh, I appreciate y'all listening as always, and we're gonna finish off the hour. We've got about 18 minutes left here. I'm not gonna do anything other than close out with some with some music and. Uh, try to play some stuff that will help us all just digest what we just heard for the last couple hours and um, uh, just lay back, relax, and enjoy the music. So uh, this is the show tonight has been for all of the people who lost their lives uh, in the World Trade Center attacks of three years ago, all the family members, all the survivors, all the people who have whose lives have been changed in the wake, in the ripple of 9-11. And uh, here's to uh, hoping that we get back on track so something like that never happens again here in this country or anywhere else uh, because life is life. And it doesn't matter what name you put on top of it. This is Mike Hagan. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. Stay tuned for Carol Greenspan, Jewish Spectrum, in about 17 minutes. In the meantime, we'll listen to some Robbie Robertson, some other stuff. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Counting Crows. This is called Catapult. KOPN, Radio Orbit. 